Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Welcome here this morning. Uh, my name is James Beckers. I'm your executive pastor. And um, I've come to preach because our lead pastor is off gallivanting through the Holy Land with a whole bunch of other folks. Um, if you're Facebook friends with any of them, you'll see that they are really enjoying so many different places. And we all wish we were there, don't we? But we're stuck back here in Sarnia, which is a holy land of sorts. Um, I was going to start this morning by telling you a joke that would make you laugh so hard that your hair would fall out. But looking around, I see that many of you have already heard it. Um, Today is a solemn day. It's Remembrance Day, or we're celebrating a Remembrance Day this weekend. My, um, as I thought about this sermon, um, a story came to mind of my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. And during the Second World War, uh, he was living in Holland, and he had hid Jews in the house. Um, there were people in the town that were deathly afraid of being captured by Nazis, and he was one of the families that had hid Jews inside the, the home. And um, in, in his protection of those um, folks, he knew there was a chance that the, that the Nazis would come around door to door, and one night they did. And I remember my, my mom telling me this story when I was just a kid. But they came pounding on the door, and everybody was terrified. And the people in the house, the Jews that were hiding there, ran off to their hiding spot. And um, the, everything started to escalate, my mom said, at the front door. It just got to be um, the army wanted in. Um, they were trying to hesitate and stall at the front door. Um, and then at a certain point, my uncle started crying loudly, relentlessly. He just started wailing. He was just an infant at the time. And eventually, my mom said that the guards decided just to forget it and leave. And I thought, what an, what an incredible moment, uh, because they almost certainly would have been searched. If you ask my grandfather why he did that, I'm sure that he would just say, I did it because it was the right thing to do. But I have a different theory. I believe my grandfather did that because my grandfather was a committed Christian, and out of sheer love and mercy, I think my grandfather did that to demonstrate an unmerited favor to people around him, to just demonstrate Christian grace to people. He offered unexpected favor because God had done that for him. We live in a world, I think, that just does not understand grace, and yet every single one of us, every one of us crave it. Every person here can think of times when they wished that their life was interrupted and surprised by grace. I'm going to just, um, this morning, I'm going to take you through a, a, a short little book in the Bible. It's um, one of the shortest books in the entire Scriptures. I don't know if you know this, but there are five books in the Bible that uh, are composed only of one chapter, a single chapter. So when you quote them, you don't go one colon two or one colon 23. You just put the verse number down. And those five books are the one I'm going to speak about this morning, Philemon. Uh, there's only one Old Testament book, that's Obadiah. And then 2 John, 3 John, 
and uh, Jude. Those are the five one-chapter books of the Bible. And this morning, we're going to look at um, Philemon. Before I came to Temple, I used to teach a course in biblical interpretation, and when I did that, I used these one-chapter books as um, texts or as study sites because there's, you can read them in a sitting in a matter of minutes, which is really, really amazing. If you, sometimes when you do a long book like Isaiah and you're trying to do interpretation, you're reading 66 chapters before you can get a sense of the whole book. These books were just one chapter, and they're packed with profound truth. I called that uh, study, by the way, a fistful of Scripture, because for every digit I have, there was one book, and together we were going to study one fistful of Scripture. So, um, sandwiched in our Bibles between Titus and Hebrews is this small but extraordinary little letter by Paul. It has something really profound to teach us, I believe, about grace. It's a puny little thing. It's one of the tiniest books in the Bible. It's a mere 25 verses, less than 500 words in length, and the epistle is simply known as the letter of Paul to Philemon. Very simple, or simply Philemon for short. Now, I'm going to walk you through uh, a little bit of kind of where it sets, where the, where, where the thing takes place, because I always find it helps um, to get... Christine, if you don't mind popping that up. I'm gonna, I always find it helps to know where the setting is. So that's the Colosseum. Yeah, we're going to go to Rome, but there's a, there's a movie that's going to play a little short clip that I'd like you to play now. All right. Here we are hovering over North America, looking at the Hudson's Bay. Um, if we went from this global sort of Western Hemisphere, North American view, we'll just shrink right down into uh, Sarnia, and uh, lo and behold, there we are, right on the mouth of the St. Clair, uh, Clair River. Um, zooming in a little more, I'll try to get us closer to the actual site we're sitting in right now. Uh, there's the rotary, off we go. Oh, there's Lowe's on the left, and the, wall, uh, the uh, Walmart, the mall on the right. And in the center, we're zooming in right now, is where you're sitting. Isn't that cool? There we are, sitting right at Temple Baptist Church. Now, we're going to go first to where Paul was writing. So over the Atlantic Ocean we go, over Portugal, and now we're in the boot of Italy, and we're hovering over uh, the city of Rome. If we go in a little closer, you'll notice some landmarks will start to appear. Uh, probably the most famous landmark was the one that was just up uh, on the screen before, the Colosseum. The Colosseum wasn't built, just so you know. It wasn't built by the time we read this letter. Um, the letter was written just down the street, though, uh, from the Colosseum in, in a prison that was in the basement of a building. It's uh, traditionally known, it's a matter of scholarly dispute, but the traditional place for the writing of this letter was in the Mamertine prison. Got a little bit of a street view going on here. So there it is, the Mamertinium, Mamertinum, and that lower part of it is dungy and dark and kind of creepy, but that's where Paul was held in that prison. Now, he's writing to Philemon, and we're going to lift off, and we're going to go into Turkey, but 2,000 kilometers from this prison, Paul is writing a man who meets with a church in his home in what is currently Turkey. So let's zoom out. The boot's coming into view. There's the thigh. Yep, over across all the oceans and seas and whatever. There's the Aegean and things like that. There we go. There's the heel of the boot down there. We're going to go now to Turkey. The letter's written to Philemon, who is in what was called Colossae, Turkey. And one thing that's really neat about this as we come into view, it's not been excavated yet. But you'll see to the left what looks like 
some kind of outlines of larger coliseums or, or perhaps an auditorium of some kind. Anyway, we'll just stop the, there, but now you have an idea, at least, you can turn the lights back on, please. Now you have an idea, at least, where the letter was written. Written in Rome, and it's going 2,000 kilometers to Turkey. And Paul's sitting now in this dingy little prison cell. And just to, I want to tell you how Paul got there to begin with. Um, Paul came to the Mamertine prison in kind of a roundabout way. He was going around the Mediterranean basin and through the Holy Land, and he was preaching the good news. And at a certain point, a whole bunch of Jewish people um, uh, dragged him from a temple, and they pulled him out onto the street, and they were going to beat him to death. But then Paul appealed to them that he was actually a Roman citizen, and that it wasn't to be permitted that he be um, killed. So, Paul finds himself then appealing to the empire, and he has to travel all the way back to Rome to be tried in a Roman court. So he finds himself, after several appeals later, he's found himself all the way down on Main Street in, in Rome to be tried in one of the highest courts of the land. Uh, accompanied by fr some friends, Paul travels thousands of kilometers where he was apprehended, and he even survives a devastating shipwreck on the high seas before eventually arriving at the very nucleus of the Roman Empire, which was Rome itself, the heart of Caesar's kingdom. Interestingly, and I think um, this is a very important fact about this little book, around the time that Paul arrives in Rome, he gets a visitor, and that's part of what makes this book so unique. But around the time Paul arrives in Rome, another visitor arrives in Rome for very different reasons. The encounter between, between Paul and this visitor, who's actually a criminal, is going to permanently alter the course of this criminal's life. The fugitive's name is Onesimus. Ironically, his name actually means useful, uh, but he's not actually all that useful right now because while that might have been true in the past, he's a runaway slave and he's run away from his owner down in Colossae. So, if, um, good. Uh, if you look at Onesimus, he, he used to be in the slave, a slave in the household of the author, or sorry, the recipient of this letter, Philemon. Onesimus used to be a slave. And we don't know why, but he ran away from his owner. And now he's a wanted fugitive. In Roman times, runaway slaves were worth nothing. They were hunted down by bounty hunters and tried and executed sometimes almost immediately. It was common for them um, to just fear constantly for their life. And he, Onesimus knows because of the consequences of his crime that as he flees across the Roman Empire, he's basically sentenced to be forever on the run. They would often slave, uh, slaves who had run away would often hide in dark alleys of the city or they'd hide sometimes in pagan shrines. Sometimes they'd just camp out in the wilderness of the empire. They just did whatever they needed to do to stay alive. Now, under ordinary circumstances, returning home for Onesimus, this slave, is just not a viable option. He can't go home. Even if, by some gracious exception, Onesimus wasn't executed when he was captured, he would most likely be branded for life. They would, put it, they would have an F branded on his head, which is um, for the word... Uh, fugitivus, the Latin word for runaway. So, you see anybody with an F on their head? They were a runaway slave. But we're going to see that this letter actually 
demonstrates to us that these were not ordinary circumstances. The circumstances weren't, uh, the circumstances weren't ordinary because this slave runs away and runs to the apostle Paul in Rome and eventually finds him in Rome, in prison. And then Onesimus begins to become very useful or helpful to Paul in the Roman prison. And in a strange twist in this whole plot, it turns out that Paul actually knows his owner, Philemon, who's back in Turkey, in Colossae. And that's who this letter's written to. So that's kind of a bit of the background on the letter. Paul had previously met Philemon, we're told, when he went preaching from city to city, and Paul and Philemon had become friends. And as they became friends, Paul came to share a really powerful, permanent bond with Philemon. It was Paul who preached the good news to Philemon. And as a result, Philemon now has become a follower of Jesus. And he begins to gather in his own home with others in the city of Colossae, almost 2,000 kilometers from Rome. So we have no idea what kind of a person Philemon was before or after he became a Christian. All we know is that at some point, his slave Onesimus decided to hightail it out of the estate, probably gather some things along the way to at least get started in his um, journey. And then all of this happened. And in a way, it only seems God could orchestrate in the big booming city of Rome. The runaway slave goes to the great apostle and comes face to face with the same man that introduced his master to Jesus. During the time that Onesimus met with Paul, Paul introduces Onesimus the slave to the same life-changing message his master had received. That message gripped and it warmed Onesimus' heart and he began to change from the inside out. And soon, Onesimus counted himself as one of the followers of Jesus and stayed to help Paul while Paul was under arrest in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, as you can imagine, um, as a result of the encounter with Onesimus, the Apostle Paul now has a big challenge on his hands. He has living with him a runaway slave. And we're told in this letter, he's a criminal. He's a fugitive, and he's a wanted man. So Paul has to think now, what am I going to do about this? And Paul's situ response in this situation as the great apostle, I think, was brilliant. What he does is he draws on his wisdom from his understanding of the Christian faith and from the example of Jesus, and he pulls out a fresh sheet of papyrus, and he starts to pen this inspired piece of correspondence. And he sends it back to the slave's owner, Philemon. And after the letter is written, he hands it over to Onesimus and says, take this home to your master. So I want you to just think about the scene as it's unfolding from there. Onesimus and the group that go with him have thousands of kilometers to travel. They take the letter from the aging apostle and they begin this long trip back to Philemon. And I mean it's a really long trip. It's about the equivalent of walking on foot from here to, say, Nova Scotia. That's how long the trip is. And as I read this letter over, I thought, this is phenomenal. It really is. I'm going to read it to you because it doesn't it can take very long. And as I do, I want you to imagine that last leg of the journey. And the small entourage that Onesimus is with, he finally approaches Philemon's home. And they arrive at the main entryway. And gripped in someone's hand is this little piece of correspondence. 
And if you were there almost 2,000 years ago, standing in Philemon's sandals, this is what you would have read. It would have been the shortest letter that Paul, that we have from the Apostle Paul, okay? As I read the letter, I want you to listen carefully to Paul the wordsmith, how he calls attention to the bond that he shares with Philemon and Onesimus now. Listen to the way he, he, he's convicted deep inside, Paul, is that your faith ought to make a difference. Our faith ought to make a difference. This drama ought to unfold a certain way. Paul speaks with the conviction about the way that Jesus changes and transforms people. He blatantly assumes that being a Christian will have a positive effect on the situation. He asks Onesimus and Philemon to go beyond themselves and take the high road. He pushes hard and he insists that Jesus needs to be a difference maker. And he refuses to take sides but makes his expectations clear. And, and it summed up well, and, and one writer crisply pointed out that what's going on here is that in this situation, Paul is actually playing Christ in the drama. He's identifying himself both with the sinner, Onesimus, and the offended party, Philemon, and he's trying to make peace. So he's not going to accuse Philemon of being a bad master, and he's not going to accuse the slave of all the things he's worthy to be uh, accused of. Instead, he will not accuse uh, Onesimus of being such a loser that he's come to become a runaway slave and a thief. He stands between them with his arms and his love around them both. And you'll notice in the letter he'll actually say to them, he'll say to Philemon, if this slave owes you anything, charge it to me, which is a beautiful example of the gospel in action. So um, let me read the short letter for you now for a minute. Paul's letter to Philemon. This letter is from Paul, in prison for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. It's written to Philemon, our much-loved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to Archippus, a fellow soldier of the cross. I'm also writing to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing of your trust in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. You are generous because of your faith. And I'm praying that you'll really put your generosity to work, for in doing so, you'll come to an understanding of all the good things we can do in Christ. I myself have gained much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because your kindness has so often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do, but because of our love, I prefer just to ask you. So take this request from your friend Paul, an old man now in prison for the sake of Christ Jesus. My plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. I think of him as my own son because he became a believer as a result of my ministry here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I really wanted to keep him here, because while I am in these chains for preaching the gospel, sorry, I really wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the gospel, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. And I didn't want you to help because you were being forced to do it, but because you wanted to. Perhaps you could think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while 
so you could have him back forever. He's no longer just a slave. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me my, uh, a partner, Philemon, give him the same welcome you would give me if I were coming. And if he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge me for it. I, Paul, write this in my own handwriting. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Hmm, that's clever. Yes, dear brother, please do this for me as a favor for the Lord's sake. Give this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Please keep a guest room ready for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So there you have it. Crammed into one small piece of correspondence, a plea from Paul to Philemon to let his runaway slave come home. But it's a miniature drama of the entire good news, the gospel. The offended party, the offender, Paul in between, reconciling, trying to bring redemption and peace. If you think about it, at some level, you and I can probably relate to one or more of the characters in this story. Perhaps at times you felt like Philemon. You've been hurt, and you had to consider to get on with the business of forgiving. Or perhaps at times you felt like Onesimus. You've done something you regret, and you really know you need to make things right. Or maybe you can really connect with Paul. You find yourself standing in the middle of a mess between two waging parties or people, and you want so much to bring reconciliation to that situation. More than likely, at different times in our lives, we've probably played all three parts at some point, depending on the circumstances. Essentially, this is a letter that focuses or emphasizes on three, emphasizes three main themes. It emphasizes forgiveness, it emphasizes repentance, and it emphasizes reconciliation. When I think about forgiveness, let's start by just thinking about that through Philemon's eyes. The big issue in here for Philemon is forgiveness. The common assumption, at least in his culture, would have been that he had every right to treat Onesimus with anger and revenge. Philemon had a runaway slave. A few, he had to forgive this slave who abandoned him and probably helped himself. Paul seems to indicate that anyway. He helped himself to something on the way out the door. In light of that, think about it, just your own life for a minute. Who do you have a right to be angry with? Who do you have a right to be angry with? How have you been hurt? Who are you struggling to forgive? Just the other um, day I read a story that came, uh, it was about a group of Polynesian people. And this group actually have the grass huts. And inside their grass huts, they actually decorate the ceiling of their grass huts with objects that remind them of people who have done wrong to them. These items are just suspended from the ceiling. It, it helps them prevent um, forgetting about the hurts that have been inflicted upon them. And, and I, like the rest of you, like I know what forgiveness can be and, and how difficult it can be. I, I find it hard, personally, sometimes to lay down my sword. I realize it's not always easy. 
and I can't suddenly wake up morning uh, one morning and it just completely have been changed the way I feel. But can you imagine in this story just licking your wounds forever by hanging objects around that remind you of people who have wronged you? People don't always own their mistakes. We know that. No matter if you're willing to forgive, they, people don't always necessarily um, admit they've done anything wrong or come willing to forgive. And in my heart, I think sometimes there's the risk, there's the temptation of being like someone in this Polynesian tribe where I might find their customs odd, but the truth is I'm tempted to do the same thing. I like to rehearse the things that people have done to me so that I can justify why I'm hurt. But you know what? I just think, can we talk for a minute about the cost or the price of unforgiveness? When I choose not to forgive another person, there is a heavy price to be paid. You all know that, I know that. When I don't forgive, I'm bound to be, uh, I'm bound actually to the person who has wronged me in some way. And there's lots of stuff written on this. Psychologists write about it, non-Christian psychologists write about it, Christians write about it. It's, uh, it's just a truth that if you don't forgive someone who's wronged you, you have an emotional bond between that person that you just would rather not have. And I've learned in my life that um, I've got to figure out a way for my sake to seek forgiveness because I don't want to pay that price of carrying that bond around forever. Lewis Smead puts it this way, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was actually you. Isn't that interesting? To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that prisoner was you. In my life, I've learned that I need to understand and I need to practice forgiveness. Without what happens, bitterness sets in, and it just takes root, and it just eats you from the inside out. We need to realize that we can experience forgiveness by forgiving others and set ourselves free in the process. And that's what Philemon's doing here in this letter, and that's what Paul's asking him to do. This little letter encourages us to take a different path. Even if we have the right to be angry with someone, we can extend the opportunity to them to be forgiven and release them then, regardless of what they do, into the arms of a wise and loving and fair God. So there's something about forgiveness that we just really need for ourselves. But maybe that's not currently where you are. Maybe you're instead more like finding yourself in the shoes of Anisimus. You've done something wrong, you wanna take responsibility for your mistakes, and you wanna make things right. We don't know for sure how Onesimus reacted inside his heart when Paul had this brilliant idea to send him back home. It's possible he moved his head up and down, but inside he's like, you've got to be kidding. You know, it's possible he said, yes, Master Paul, I will go home. But, you know, what's important in this story is that instead of staying on the run, Onesimus is willing to look at himself, and he's willing to own his own mistake. And I think the most common thing for me in this world, and I think the rest of us, is not to own our own mistake, to justify it. Sometimes we, we're just like coated with Teflon. We, everything hits us and slides off. We just don't want to admit sometimes that we're wrong. And we fail to take responsibility in the form of repentance for those failures. And we deeply limit our ability to grow. And the truth is, the position Onesimus is in describes what it was like for every single one of us before we admitted our mistakes and asked for forgiveness by going before 
God and coming to Christ. I was running from God. I didn't want to follow Jesus. I wanted more to enjoy just what life had to offer. I was even more annoying than I am now, if you can believe that. I was rude to people around me. I was scrappy and I was yappy and I thought Christianity was unhelpful. But God caught up with me and he helped me to realize how much I needed him. We have to be willing at times, and it's a great discipline, and it shows incredible character, but we have to be willing to admit when we've fallen short and we've missed the mark. When it's time to seek forgiveness, time to cultivate a heart that's willing to admit failures, time to stop making excuses and just own our own mistakes. So maybe that's where you can, uh, who you can identify with, Onesimus. There is a third sort of theme in the letter, which is the one that Paul so, I think, eloquently demonstrates. Finally, there's this theme of reconciliation. Now, it's more than obvious to all of us that Paul, what he really wants here is for the two to come together no longer as master and slave, but as brothers in Christ. And he uses every single scrap of influence that he can when he does that. Reread Philemon. He's really playing around the edges, Paul is, and trying to convince uh, Philemon back home that it sure would be a good idea. It really would be a good idea, not to mention you owe me your very life or so. It would be a good idea for you to take him back. But I don't want to force you to. Oh, by the way, prepare a guest house or a guest room for me because I might be coming by. You know, there's lots going on there. Paul is a master wordsmith here. He's really trying to work it for all he can. Verses like, I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do, but because of your love, uh, because of our love, I prefer to just ask you. Um, if I was harmed in any way or stolen anything from you, uh, if he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge it to me. There, you have no reason to be upset anymore. So uh, there's lots going on there. But, you know, at the heart of it all, I, I know why Paul's itching to see reconciliation. He's itching for it because his master, Paul's master, Jesus, demonstrated it. He was the reconciler, right? And what Paul really wants here is to demonstrate to a watching world that this faith that he has in Jesus actually works, that two people can be reconciled together in Christ. We, know, we don't know for sure um, what happened as a result of this letter. We don't have the ending. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's probably one of the most respected evangelicals today, made this grandiose statement, however, about reconciliation. He thinks the major difference between Christianity and every other worldview that there ever was is exactly this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does accomplish reconciliation. Reconciliation between people and God and reconciliation even between people and people. Major difference between Christianity and every other worldview there ever was is exactly this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does accomplish reconciliation. And I'm really convinced personally that Paul saw it that way, that he looked at it and he said, I want this message that I've been going around risking my life for, laying out my life for. I want to show people it works in the real world. The gospel depends on it. So maybe you can relate to Paul in this letter. Maybe you're in a place where you can use your life and you can use your influence to bring healing to a situation. We need Christians to step forward in this world and be reconcilers. People who are willing to work in costly and really difficult situations. People willing to stand in the gap. 
We need reconcilers here in Sarnia, in our city. We need reconcilers here in our churches, and we need reconcilers in our families. And then we also need to help people understand how they can be reconciled to God. Maybe you're being called to help bring reconciliation and healing to a broken world. That's the message that Jesus brought. That's what Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection made possible. Maybe that's the place where God can use you. Sometimes I think, what might this story look like today? What would the story of Philemon maybe look like today? And the other day I was reading and I came across a story that I think summarizes it really well. I'm going to share a final story of forgiveness and grace with you. It's something I think we can all connect with because we can find ourselves just like we can find ourselves in the letter, uh, Paul's letter to Philemon, we can find ourselves in this little story. And if you listen closely, I think, and look carefully, you can actually hear this situation, not for being an odd and strange situation, but it's probably pretty common in our world today. So just let me share this little story with you. There's a young girl who's growing up in a cherry orchard just outside of Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned. They tend to overreact at her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirt. They grabbed her a few times. Oh, sorry, they, gra- they ground her a few times, and she fumes inside. <coughs> One day she's had it with the restrictions and the rules. I hate you, she says. And she runs out the door, and she acts that night on a plan that she's rehearsed many, many times. She runs away. She's been to Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that'll probably be the last place that her parents will look for her. California, maybe. Florida, maybe. But not Detroit. On her second day in the city, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, he buys her lunch, and he arranges for a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills to make her feel better, and she does. She feels better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. Before long, she's living in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Life is good. Occasionally, she thinks about home, but home now seems so boring she can hardly believe she grew up there. After a year, however, the first signs of illness appear. It it amazes her how fast her boss turns mean. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much. And by now, all the money goes to support her habit. It isn't long before the winter sets in, and she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside of big department stores. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough just keeps getting worse. One night, as she lies awake, listening to footsteps all around her, she thinks about her life. Instead of being a woman of the world, independent and strong, She feels like a lost little girl, lost in a cold and scary city, and she begins to cry. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. Then something jolts her memory, and an image fills her mind, and she's drawn back to the day in her childhood where she's wearing a baby blue dress, and amber hair is blowing in the wind, 
and it's May, and there's a million flowers in bloom all around her. And she returns to this place in her mind, and as she does, there's a certain innocence about it. That memory of her running in a wide open space without a care in the world reminds her of a time when her life was actually filled with hope. She was safe, and she was loved, and she was accepted. God, she mumbles, why did I leave? Her eyes well up, and a pain stabs her in the heart. Finding her way to a nearby payphone, she begins to dial home. Three straight phone calls and three straight connections with the answering machine. The third time, she stirs up enough courage to leave a message. Dad? Mom? It's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. The next day, as she travels home, she wonders, will her parents even be there? What if they're out of town? What if they miss the message? Should she have waited another day or so and called again? Even if they are home, maybe they've kind of written her off. Maybe she should have been uh, maybe she should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between worry and a speech she begins to prepare for her dad. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine, Dad. Can you forgive me? And she says the words over and over, and her throat tightens even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. It's dark outside, and every so often, a billboard sign posts the mileage to Traverse City. When the bus finally rolls in the station, its air brakes hiss in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life, she thinks. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth, and wonders if her parents will even notice the tobacco stains on her fingers, if they're even there. Walking into the terminal, she doesn't know what to expect, but nothing, absolutely nothing, not one of a thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees next. There, among the concrete and the plastic chairs in this terminal, in Traverse City, Michigan, stares a motley crew of about 40 people. Her brothers and her sisters, her aunts and her great-aunts and her uncles and her cousins and her grandmother and even her great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing stupid party hats, and they're blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is this computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers comes her dad. She stares out through tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury, and she chokes out the first words of her memorized speech. Dad, I'm so sorry, I know. And he interrupts her. Shh, we have no time for that. We don't have time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. And you know, as I thought about that story, which so much resembles the story of the prodigal son, doesn't it? Um, that's what it's all about. Just think about it. People feeling like they can come home and be at peace and be reconciled. I don't know where you find yourself in the stories this morning, but it's time maybe for some of you to actually take a step and act in the process and act on the process of forgiving someone. For others, I think some of you need to own your own mistakes, show some character, admit you've done something wrong, and go and repent and ask for forgiveness. And for others, you might be the exact vehicle 
that God has determined to be a reconciler and a healer in this broken and hurting world. Think about that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, this letter is beautiful. It's short, but it speaks to every one of our lives because it is part of the greatest story ever told. And I do pray, Father, that we will somehow find ourselves in the story and that we won't just think about what we learn, but we'll act upon it. So I pray you'll make us a courageous people, people that are acting out this great drama in our lives and among others. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.